actually this was the moment when everything converted into a nightmare for me you know can you tell me about what that what that day was like ah it was um, i remember it was a cold day you know it was in february february 28th 2017 a bus was driving down the highway in northern bulgaria headed towards the border with romania among the passengers was a 32-year-old Romanian graphic designer. For reasons that'll become clear, he asked that I not use his real name. I'll call him Lucian. The bus ride was a long but routine four-hour trip to Lucian's home in Bucharest, Romania's capital. Because back in the day, I used to have a girlfriend that was Bulgarian, so I used to live with her there. Mm. And when I was moving back to Romania, I remember I used to go always with the same bus, most of the drivers, they knew me, you know, I mean, I was a regular passenger on that line. Even the people at the border, they knew me because I was crossing so often. Yeah. And I remember we stopped and they checked our IDs. I wasn't even thinking that there would be a problem. The driver collected their IDs for a border control officer to examine. But instead of handing them all back, the agent walked down the side of the bus and yelled for Lucian to identify himself. When he did... He was told to step off the bus and collect his luggage. So I took most of my stuff. Oh my God, even now when talking about it, you know, I have goosebumps. The guy in the border control, he called me and he say, what happened? Do you have some problem or something? What did you do, man? And I say, what did I do? None, none, nothing that I know of. And he say, let me make sure there is no error or something. He said, this is only for very dangerous people. By this, the guard meant that he was looking at a red notice in Lucian's name from Interpol, the International Criminal Police Organization. A red notice meant that some country, somewhere in the world, had flagged Lucian with a request for his arrest. Come with me, the officer told him. They climbed into a car and drove back across the Danube River into Bulgaria and stopped at a small building that doubled as a border detention center. They put me in some office and I was like, okay, so can I know what is this all about or something? I mean, it's normal for me to know why, why I'm being held, no? If I need a lawyer or something, I need to know this. And they say, no, you don't need to know anything, you know? They were very, very screaming and everything, you know? They were trying to intimidate one person. They say, hey, look, America is looking for you. America, that's who had requested Lucian's arrest. If America is looking for you, they will put you in prison, you will see. I say, I don't know what are you talking about, really. I, I say, I have no idea. The border guards held him overnight, without water, in a cell teeming with cockroaches. For Lucian, who had never been arrested before, or really been in any trouble at all, it felt like a nightmare he might wake up from the next morning. But the nightmare was his life now. And for the next two years, every morning when he opened his eyes, he woke up to it. From Wondery, Pineapple Street Studios, and Amazon Music, I'm Evan Ratliff, and this is Persona. Je suis bien perplexe, je ne peux me résoudre.
d'autres adieux Episode 3, Copycats. The truth is, Lucian did have some idea why he'd been detained. It had to do with a job he'd had three years before, working for a Romanian tech company. It was a strange project. Using his graphic design skills, he'd touch up digital signatures on corporate documents. He'd been relocated to Turkey to do the work. But after a few weeks on the job, he discovered that he'd inadvertently become a cog in a much darker machine. The project, it turned out, was a scam operation with mysterious backers, extracting money from companies across Europe by impersonating their executives. In the modern global economy, certain kinds of crime are, in a way, like viruses. I don't mean like computer viruses. I mean virus viruses. New, lucrative variations tend to spread. They replicate. And as they spread, new variants emerge. Little tweaks to the script, like mutations in DNA. That's what happened with Gilbert Shickley's president scam. While he was in Ashdod, throwing his money around, crashing his yachts, the method he invented was evolving. How closely connected Shickley was to any given strain is a puzzling question. There are details suggesting he was more than just a godfather to it all, though he would claim otherwise. At the very least, he was there in the DNA as it spread all over the world, altering the lives of people who'd never heard of him and generating new kinds of victims and perpetrators like Lucian. After 24 hours in the holding cell, Lucian still hadn't seen a lawyer, he told me, or been informed of his charges. Unbeknownst to him, his brother had come to the border to try and find him. He was told nothing about why Lucian was being held or how to get him out. The next day, the border police transferred him to a nearby city jail and told him he would have to wait to find out if he would be extradited to the U.S. There was no available bed, so... People were supposed to sit and sleep on the ground and they would just give you some rags. This is something that I could not understand why they give you wet rags. You cannot sleep on that. I mean, you better sleep on dry ground or something, you know. I got very sick. Pneumonia, he thinks, although no one bothered to diagnose it. It was a particular piece of bad fortune that Lucian's girlfriend had lived in a country with some of the foulest and most dangerous prisons in the world. Just two years earlier, the European Court of Human Rights had ruled that Bulgaria's detention system violated prohibitions against inhumane treatment. Just being in a Bulgarian prison was considered, legally, a kind of torture. They would put like 10 men in the shower, and the only shower in the room was just a broken pipe through which the water would go. Very hot water. You could not sit under it. I mean, it was boiling hot, you know. You could not take normal shower under that water. So, of course, the tough guys around, they would stay too much time under the shower, you know. They would spend most of the time, actually. Lucian was not one of the tough guys. Later, his own lawyer would describe him in a court document as, quote, of slight build, weighing 147 pounds, with an engaging and shy personality. Because of his frail appearance and artistic inclinations and aptitude, the lawyer wrote, he would be described by others as a nerd. For the next two and a half months, the authorities shuffled him from prison to prison, week by week, for reasons he could never discern. They took me from one city to another city. It's like I was on a jail tour, and each one had uh, its own uh, specialty, to say. So each one was worse than the other from before. There was the Mad Max prison. I remember I got to this city, which was very remote near the mountains. Inside the jail, there was like a tower 
and each level there were people on the bars just screaming, you know, this is new people, let's get them. Everybody screaming, making noise, hitting with the cans in the bars. There was the urine-soaked rat mattress prison. I remember we went into the underground of this prison and it was like a room full of very big rats. I never seen such a big rats. And this guy said, go and take a mattress. I take a mattress. It was full with rats going around. It was smelling like pee and everything. Ugh. Anyway, all of them, they were like this. Were you afraid for your life in, the, in that one? Oh, yeah, of course. If you stay with someone in the room, especially if they know I'm not from there, I'm from other country, they will just take everything out from me, food, clothing, whatever I have, they will take. They will leave me naked. And then there was the most notorious of them all, Sofia prison in Bulgaria's capital. It was back in the day, one of the worst prisons in the world. This was a place where I seen so many fights. Also, they had fleas inside, you know, they had flea invasion. If you didn't catch that, a flea invasion, an invasion of fleas. Oh my God, I remember this room was very small. Imagine 20-something people to stay in there. There were not enough mattresses for the people. So some people would just stay on the metallic stuff of the bed. Yeah. And a lot of crazy people, you know, some people masturbating, some people doing all sorts of crazy stuff. What was your psychological reaction to that? I was terrified. I started having panic attacks. I could not sleep at night. I, I would pray so I can sleep a little bit, you know. I would just keep my eyes open and I try to close them. But, but as soon as I close them, I start having these images with the places, you know. Here he was in one of the world's worst prisons, side by side with hardened criminals. And it was all because of some Photoshop work he'd done years ago. How could this be happening? But the why of it all would come later. For now, he was just trying to stay alive and stay sane. I knew this is something that I have to adapt to because, you know, whoever is not adapted, I see people in front of me that I could talk with normally one day and after one week, they were crazy. Their mind blew away. Like Hmm. after one week, I was not able to have normal conversation with them. This is what made me understand that this was more than anything a mind game. Not a a game, but a mind, uh, how to say so, like a mind uh, challenge. Lucian had studied psychology in college, gotten a master's degree, and practiced as a therapist for a while. He said he used that experience in prison, tried to step outside himself, ask questions a therapist might. In one prison, he'd traded cigarettes for a pen. I remember I used to write on the walls on anything that I could. I knew this from studying psychology initially, that, you know, whenever you have emotions, you have to express them one way or another. He left his career as a therapist to pursue more artistic goals, as a graphic designer. That's what landed him a job with a small Romanian tech firm. It was the kind of place other businesses came to when they wanted a new website or mobile app. One day a new client had come along, a well-paying one that needed design work, revising some documents. They said they wanted them to look professional for grant proposals. Initially, I was supposed to just revise all sorts of documents and to improve quality of some of the paperwork, scanned copies, and so on and so forth. It was a temporary gig working on site in Antalya, Turkey, on the Mediterranean coast. So this wasn't suspicious to you? This wasn't strange? Uh, Initially, no, because I used to work on outsourced relation with other clients. I mean, it was not something new. They would cover expenses and everything, and I would still get my salary and everything. Nearly quadruple his salary, in fact, from $1,300 a month to $4,000. It would go a long way back home. 
In Turkey, the client rented what the authorities would later describe as a safe house. To Lucian, it was just an ordinary Airbnb-type place, with each employee given a bedroom. I was thinking this is more or less normal, you know? On most days, there were four or five people in the house at a time, each working out of their own room. They were all different nationalities. There was a Slovakian, Spaniard, a Serbian, mostly engaged in parts of the project Lucian wasn't told about. But the vibe was more co-working space than criminal headquarters. Describe for me if you remember the moment when you started realizing that something was not right. Well, actually, when I start hearing some discussions between them, Mm. and if I would come and they would talk about something, they would stop. He'd walk into the kitchen, say, and everyone would suddenly go quiet. And every time I was thinking, okay, maybe this is something confidential, whatever, is not my problem. But little by little, I noticed that they were even a little bit tense about some of the stuff. And I tried to ask them, you know, what's going on? What's this all about? Finally, one day, the other guys sat him down and connected up the rest. They said, so look, there is some missing things that you should be aware of, but you should not be scared or afraid or something. You've seen us. We are okay people. We are not going to make any trouble for you as long as everything goes along the lines of what we want. They said they were running a scam targeting big companies across Europe. They didn't say who was behind it all, but they did tell them where the plans came from a French-speaking Israeli who I'll call Ari. Some of the team had traveled to Israel to learn the scam from him and from people he knew who'd pulled it off before. I never heard directly any of these names. I just know that he used to say that he's coming from the place where all of this is originating. Hmm. He used to say something that in Israel there is people making this and they have like rented entire building levels or something, you know? They have so many people doing this in there that it's like a corporate business or something, you know? How many dots separated Lucian and Gilbert Shickley? It was hard to work out precisely. When I went through the court files and the eventual case against Lucian and Ari, they showed that Ari had taught the crew for a 5% take of the proceeds. He'd actually suggested they do it from Israel, but they'd insisted on Europe. Ari had even translated a kind of planning session for the Europeans, given by another French-speaking Israeli, an unnamed expert on the scam. That's where the trail went cold. But at some level, it didn't matter whether or not Shikli was the expert from that training. His presence loomed over it all. Tracing the evolution of a con can be challenging. Scammers don't generally keep detailed records or catalog their inspirations. Also, they're liars. But I wanted to understand, the best I could, whether the president's scam really originated with Shikley. And if so, how did it spread? So I looked in court records and spoke to cyber fraud experts. I read histories of con artistry and academic treatises on social engineering, the art of convincing people to do your bidding. I even tracked down a paper in an obscure Chinese journal because I thought it referenced a Shikley-like ancient scam. Turns out, the article was just about Shikley himself. The sum total of my research was this. Most scams are just recycled versions of older ones. And it's not like Gilbert Shickley was the first con artist to impersonate someone in order to talk people out of their money. But the elements of the president's scam and the uniquely modern way Shickley put them together, that was truly new, in a way that rarely happens in the history of scamming. 
And it didn't take long for his creation to start spreading. Those cases started arising years ago. And of course, companies all over the world were being hit by these scams. Ken Gamble is the co-founder and executive chairman of IFW Global. His company tracks down cyber frauds, collaborates with law enforcement, and tries to get scammed companies their money back. He's been doing it for over 30 years and saw the rise of impersonation scams firsthand. The general public were not familiar with these types of scams. No one had ever heard of this happening. So it was very easy for people to fall victim from these scams when they started to emerge. Shikli's scam began moving outward from Israel, most likely spread through some combination of word of mouth, underground forums online, and media coverage of Shikli's big scores. As it spread, it morphed, taking on pieces of other cons, adapting to new cultures. It traveled under new names like CEO fraud, imposter fraud, or the transfer order scam, or whaling, the giant corporate equivalent of phishing scams. In a particularly dangerous evolution, criminal networks have combined elements of the president's scam with email hacking to create a kind of super scam called business email compromise, BEC for short. In BEC scams, the perpetrators often break into the company's email, enabling them to study and monitor the people they aim to impersonate. It's a simple matter to forge invoices and transfer requests that look authentic. The FBI says that since 2016, BEC scams alone have cost companies more than $43 billion. As a general rule, variations on the president's scam can be identified by their mix of secrecy and urgency. Isolating the perfectly vulnerable mark, placing them at the center of a high-stakes drama, and applying the exact psychological pressure needed to control the target. That's the common denominator in these scams. That's what prompts the paymaster to to make this transfer because they're worried they're going to get in trouble. In a decade, the scam grew from the work of one guy in the telephone to something organized, industrialized even. This is part of why Shikli was so interesting to me. He'd built something that took over the world. It has grown to monstrous proportions these criminal organizations behind it, they're no longer, you know, a few people operating out of a bedroom. We're seeing massive call centers with a thousand employees in very well-established, highly secure, state-of-the-art offices spread across a city, which we're seeing in Eastern Europe, almost impossible to penetrate from law enforcement perspective. Over the years since Shikley first got Madam G on the line, the losses have gone from a few hundred thousand dollars passed through a bathroom stall to billions every year. No single law enforcement agency in the world is capable of going across 20 countries. So there's not even a concern or a worry that the police are going to knock on their door. Even in Israel, where Shikli pioneered the scam, the authorities found it impossible to confront its growth. Israel have long not been able to prosecute local scammers because the local scammers are using offshore accounts. So the Israelis know this. They all know it. Shikli knew it all too well. While Lucian slowly awakened to his involvement in a global crime ring, Gilbert Shikli was living in his mansion on the sunny coast of Israel. He was far removed from where the French authorities wanted him, serving a seven-year prison sentence he'd just been handed from a court in Paris. Shikli had declined their suggestion that he return for his own trial. So had his brother, Simone. The French convicted them anyway, in absentia. Only David Atiash and Shikli's mistress, Shirley, had stayed to face the verdict and served out their time. France remained too embarrassed, or too unsure of their case, to pursue a second extradition of Shikli, to try and get back the man who they'd let slip away. Instead, they put out an international arrest warrant, hoping Shikli would cross a border. But as long as he stayed in Israel, 
He was untouchable. And his mystique only seemed to grow. In France, there was a feature film loosely based on his life. Chickley even worked with the producers and got paid for it. The movie, which hit Parisian theaters in December 2015, was called Je Compte Sur Vous. I'm counting on you. Allô? Votre président à l'appareil. Mon président? Oui, votre président. Vous garderez ce numéro exclusivement pour cette mission. Une mission, vous dites? Pourquoi moi? Parce que j'ai une totale confiance vous concernant. A fictionalized composite character of his wife and mistress was played by Julie Gaillet, the real-life girlfriend of France's president, Francois Hollande. Chickley even showed up on set in Israel. As it turned out, the movie itself bombed at the box office. Chickley had earned a low five figures advance, but as was his style, he claimed he'd made millions. Just before the film's release, two reporters from the Associated Press, Daniel Estrin and Tia Goldenberg, came to Ashdod to interview Chickley. It was for a story about money laundering through China. After weeks of calls to Shikli's burner phones, they'd expected to find him tight-lipped. But when they finally sat with him by his pool, they couldn't shut him up. Aujourd'hui, je vous dis, ce n'est pas mon métier de faire le président. Je l'ai fait à la base pour une vengeance individuelle. Today, I'm telling you, it's not my job to do the president. I did it basically for individual revenge. If there were emulators, it's unfortunate. But me? I haven't done anything for a very long time. He said he was mostly invested in real estate now. I'm married. I have six children. I have my son who's entering the army in two months. I bring my children to school. I'm home at 8 o'clock in the evening. I do my business from time to time, and very sincerely, today, I am the simplest man in the world. It's the media who makes me out to be complicated. But otherwise, I am the simplest man in the world. His in absentia conviction was a product of the president's scam, having taken on a life of its own. He was an easy scapegoat, he said, a stand-in for all the world's president scammers. I was condemned for an idea. I was not condemned for facts. Me? I was condemned because it spread everywhere. I'm not responsible for things that some people do. I am condemned because he did this or that. They didn't understand. A thief? You can't convict all these thieves because they stole the same thing. But he also couldn't resist boasting about his creation. He claimed that there were 100,000 people in Israel employed by the scam. An absurd figure. Many of them, he asserted, were French Israelis who'd come to Israel fleeing anti-Semitism in France. He'd even heard that it was being pulled off against American companies. La France, est un petit peu France is a little saturated, and they've understood that it is something that could be exported. So, in other words, unfortunately, the United States. But what they don't know is that the United States is not France. In hindsight, he said, he was fortunate that scamming Americans hadn't been an option for him. D'ailleurs, je suis très heureux by the way, I am very, very, very happy that I do not speak English. Because if I spoke English, of course, I would still, uh, I would be... <laughs> because the American authorities didn't play around. That the FBI doesn't joke. He insisted he had no role in the scams anymore. He wasn't teaching anyone how to do it either. He was just the inspiration. There were stories about him, he said, and now anyone could copy the method. I didn't do any training. I don't hold the reins. I have no control. But yes, I know. People come to Israel to do this job because they have no other option. And anyway, the scam wasn't patented. 
All you needed was the idea, the script, and the nerve. C'est comme une recette d'un gâteau. It's uh, like a recipe for a cake. Do you want to bake a cake on the internet? You have a recipe. In Lucian's case, the recipe had come from Ari, the Israeli. He'd never shown up in Turkey, but when the crew's visas expired, they closed up the house and moved to Bulgaria. Ari showed up in person there to help improve their methods. Tall and tan, with flowing black hair, he seemed to know exactly what would work. He showed them how to better craft their emails, what kind of phone scripts to use, and especially how to find information to leverage against their marks. Did they have someone whose job it was to research the company and figure out who to... Yeah, they had a person. There was a person that his role was exactly this, to obtain all the information that he could about this company, everything, to implement this in a better way. Once the target was selected, Lucian's group would send an email from the company's CEO. Often it would arrive from a URL the scammers had bought, just a few letters off from the real one. The message would ask if the employee was at their desk, right now, to deal with an important matter. If they would answer this email, it was clear that they start, they, they got engaged. Mm-hmm. Like the hook. If they would believe the first part of the conversation, they would believe everything else that would follow. With the hook in place, the scammers would turn the next page of the script. The next email conversation was sent, in which the situation was described about confidential uh, transaction that had to be held. Maybe a time-sensitive stock transaction or the urgent acquisition of another company. The CEO needed the help of this person, confidential also. He or she could not speak anything to anyone. Next, they'd send over documents on the company letterhead, signed by the CEO. That was the job Lucian had been hired for, touching up low-res images of signatures and company logos they'd found on the internet. Finally, after the documents, came a call from a lawyer or another representative of the CEO to finalize the transaction. At some points, the crew dallied with what you might call the full Shickley approach, impersonating the actual executive on the phone, as Shickley had done in La Poste and other scams. The problem was, they had Gilbert Shickley's script, but no Gilbert. I think they actually tried a, f- a couple of times, but it didn't work. Hmm. Uh, yeah, this must be something very special. I think not anyone can do this. I remember even this guy, you know, the Israeli guy. Ari. He was trying to go also on the phone for like a few times or something, you know. But he his English was not from the best. He could speak French, but his French would not help him, I guess. I don't know. Still, with Ari's help, they finally had the email version down. From Bulgaria, they relocated to the Czech Republic, then Poland, then Slovakia. They started bringing more people in. Yeah. And this is where I've seen that actually this thing is quite big. I was even more worried about the fact that if this thing is big and it's not some small stuff, for sure there must be someone big involved into this. Ultimately... It was all just a volume game. Lucian guesses about 10% of their targets even responded, and a smaller percentage bit the hook hard enough to be reeled in. But those numbers multiplied out to almost a million dollars a month. Lucian said the money got divided among members of the gang, and they'd give a cut to Ari and mysterious backers elsewhere. You might be wondering, why didn't he just close his laptop, pack his bags, and head back to Romania? I wondered that too. Once you knew... Okay, there's something shady going on here. I'm involved in it. Did you have a feeling like, 
I don't want to know anything else than what I know. <laughs> to be honest, in this side of the world, when you are involved into something like this, you just mind your business. Yeah. You, know, you don't go to authorities and say, hey, look, this is happening, whatever. No, you just mind your own business and you just follow along. And uh, mm -hmm. I was thinking, okay, this might end at some point soon. And uh, I will just pretend I never know these guys. I will just get back to my life or something. At the beginning, he'd been told it was just a temporary job. He figured he'd just keep his head down, collect his pay. He hadn't told anyone what was happening. Not his family, not his friends, no one. I was feeling really, to be honest, really ashamed. You know, I remember I had uh, friends that would come and say, ah, but, uh, you know, you're, uh, you're traveling, I see, this is very nice for you. And, and I was too ashamed, you know, I was, uh, because I knew this was not something to be proud of or to brag about or whatever. I was just hoping, okay, soon it will, it will finish. Lucian started thinking, maybe I can train them to do basic graphic design work, and then they won't need me anymore. I was actually thinking if there is any other way that I can actually make the things or teach them yeah. so they can do it so I can go away. At one point, he even pitched the team on going straight, developing a legitimate app he had an idea for. They didn't understand, of course, what I was trying to explain to them, but at least I tried. Yeah. I mean, I tried to pitch them something. <laughs> but, you know, I think at some point they just got greedy and they saw it, it started working better. The end of the scam was, in a way, woven into its fabric. The more successful the team was with the script, the more companies they targeted, the more countries they tried, the brighter they would appear on the authorities' radar. Deep down, Lucian and his co-conspirators knew this. That's what Lucian was now, a co-conspirator, no matter how he got into it or how badly he wanted out. I was actually talking with one of the other guys that also started to feel a little bit uncomfortable in this position. Mm -hmm. I mean, he said, look, if something happens, this is going to end up very bad for everyone. Very, very bad for everyone. And then finally it happened. At the time, they were working out of a house in Bratislava, Slovakia. One of the guys came into the room where Lucian was working, panicked, and said, you need to sit down. And I said, but I'm sitting. What happened? And his face was, oh my God, I remember his face was really frightened and he was white. And he said, uh, look, they took someone. We need to get everything very fast. We have to be out of here in five minutes. And when I heard that, I don't know how to say it. I just blocked. I couldn't react to anything. I could not do. I was in shock. Lucian snapped out of it, grabbed his small suitcase and stuffed his things inside. The other guys poured liquid into the computers and then smashed them. They threw the remnants into a plastic bag. We took everything and we went out from the back of the building. And from the front of the building, we could hear police cars coming. Oh my God. They tossed the computer bag on a garbage pile and hopped into a cab. Airports were out of the question, so they headed for the train station. Each of them caught a train back to their respective countries and never spoke again. Over the next year, Lucian tried to restart his life in Bucharest, but there was always a background hum of dread, the feeling that eventually, somehow, it would catch up with him. I mean, I could almost foresee that this moment will arrive. It was just a matter of time, and I just didn't know when it will come. He was right, of course. Everything was already in motion. In November 2016, Ari was arrested in Israel and accused of being part of a ring of fake president scammers. On the same day, 
the authorities picked up Simon Shickley, Gilbert's brother. We can't say for sure how the scam's all tied together, or that Ari connected directly to Joubert Shikli. But I can say, and Ari's Facebook connections, when I found them later, bore this out. They were at most two degrees apart. Meanwhile, Lucian's moment at the Bulgarian border was just three months away. You know, when, when everything happened like this and uh, I got arrested, on one hand, it was a nightmare. But on the other hand, I was feeling somehow that this tension got released. In the months after his arrest at the border, while Lucian was trying to stay alive deep in the bowels of Bulgarian prisons, his extradition case to America was winding its way through the Bulgarian legal system. Eventually, my family came out with a lawyer, which was actually not the best because, of course, they did not have the money to hire some expensive lawyer. And oh my God, I remember this lawyer was such a sensitive person. I remember she used to tell me, oh my God, I'm so sorry for you. I think you will have to stay for 20 years in prison or something like this. And I say, what? You are my lawyer. You should be defending me. Let's try not to get me extradited. When he went before the Bulgarian judges, Lucian said they didn't seem to know much about the specifics of his file a succession of rubber stamps on his path to America. After an initial ruling against him, he gave up and decided to agree to his extradition. He would take his chances in the U.S. over more months fighting off flea invasions, or worse. And who knows what can happen? Maybe, I don't know, maybe these people will let you die here for six months. Like, come on, six months in here? Maybe he could explain himself, find a way to clear his name, and escape the 20-year sentence his file told him he was facing. But there was one more opportunity for him to avoid boarding that plane to the U.S. When I was on the way to Sofia prison, when they make the transfer, they send me with a car. And uh, I remember the guys from the car. The guards, knowing that he was headed to America, jokingly offered to take him to a sex worker before dropping him off at the prison. And then one of them turned serious. And he takes phone from his pocket and he say, look, if your people will send 100,000 euro." to a bank account that we give, we take you with this car in the first city in Romania. They drive him over the border and set him free. And I say, look, man, I don't want to complicate my situation. My situation anyway is complicated. And they stop the car and this guy look at me one more time. Are you sure you don't want to make this phone call? And I was like, thank you, but nah. (laughs) You know, (laughs) that's a very kind offer. Thank you very much, but I'm not going to do that. Instead, a few weeks later, two U.S. Marshals escorted him onto a commercial flight from Sofia to Washington, D.C. In a small gesture of kindness, they only handcuffed him as he was getting off the plane. In federal court, he stood accused of extracting over $9 million from companies all over Europe. But at least he finally discovered why he'd been sent to America in the first place. The gang's communications had passed through the servers of American tech companies, and one of the scammers, not Lucian, had traveled to the U.S. to try and recruit a native English speaker into the scheme. That was all it took to be a part of a criminal conspiracy in America. He was assigned a court-appointed attorney, a good one, ready to fight for him. Lucian says his lawyer argued for taking the case to trial. There were no photos of him carrying out the crime, no audio tape, almost no digital evidence whatsoever. My lawyer was actually very convinced that we will win. He said, look, they have no evidence. They basically have nothing going on. In 2018, the year Lucian's case would have been tried, there were 79,704 federal indictments of criminal defendants in the U.S. 
only around 1,600 of those went to trial. And of those, only 320 defendants were acquitted. Did Lucian want to gamble on being one of 320? If he won, he could go home. If he lost, he faced 15 to 20 years in prison. He decided to plead guilty. He would take responsibility, he said, and tell the prosecutors the story. 15 years, it's over for me. So I said, no, I will just go whatever time they give me. It is what it is, but at least it's not going to be 15 years. As part of his plea, he sat down with prosecutors for what's called a proffer session. Lucian was asked to reveal every incident in which he'd ever broken the law, even if it had never come up in the case. He racked his brain, trying to remember everything he'd ever done wrong in his life. There was one thing, he finally said. He had an illegal version of Adobe Photoshop on his computer. And I remember these people on the table, they started laughing, you know. I mean, for them, it was the least important thing in the world. The prosecution accepted his version of events, that he hadn't known what he was getting into or how to get out of it. It's just the way things happened, you know. I'm not saying I was a victim, someone put the gun on my head or something, but it was just a context. But that didn't change the fact that he'd committed the crime and done so willingly. I had a lot of time to reflect better upon this, you know, and in every case, there were some people who pay with their jobs. They had families or, you know, loans in the bank. Some of these people, they would think, how come this happened to them? And it's true, because I would feel the same, you know. The judge sentenced him to 27 months in federal prison with credit for his time in Bulgaria and the U.S. He'd serve another eight months. Inside, Lucian passed the time by taking whatever prison work he could get. At one point, he managed to finagle an assignment to paint murals on the cell block walls. The guards let him work at night, which was helpful, since after Bulgaria, he couldn't sleep anyway. By day, he drew cartoons about his experience and made drawings for his fellow prisoners. I used to make cards for the loved ones for home, and they would send handcrafted cards with, you know, I miss you or something with some small drawing. And they would pay me in commissary products whenever commissary would come. Then, exactly two years to the day from being plucked off a bus on the Bulgarian border, he was on a plane home to Romania. Three years later, when we talked, Lucian was still trying to process what it had all meant for him, his foray into the world of high-tech scamming. Gilbert Shickley had in some sense provided the script, and then Lucian had lived it out. The only way you can pass through such a trauma is with a meaning. So I still think there must be some meaning behind this. Lucian is one of those people who believes everything happens for a reason. And for years he'd been asking himself, what was the reason for this? What good could he take from all that had happened? What is the sense or what is the purpose of me being amidst these people, you know? Because I was thinking maybe it's because in my life, always I wanted to experience life from more points of view. I wanted to have a more variety in life. He'd wanted to travel, Lucian said, to see the world, have experiences, adventure. I had experiences, but one of the worst, but it's still called an experience, you know? This is very subjective with the good or bad. This good or bad is only in our mind. Good or bad, it's only in your mind. It was a remarkable thing to hear Lucian say, given everything he'd seen and done. But it also felt, in its way, like a thread running through this whole story. Was Gilbert Shickley simply a repugnant criminal? A narcissist who inflicted a new scourge upon the world? 
Or was he, as his family and his fans said, a kind of anti-hero subverting the global financial system? And the multinational companies that gave away their money, were they helpless victims or something more complicated? If you shift your perspective just a few degrees in one direction or another, you could see it differently. But anyway, Shickley had hung it up, hadn't he? He'd retired from scamming to relax by the pool, consult on movies, and monitor all those real estate investments. Had he, though? Come on now. It took a silicone mask like this one, an old phone, two flags, and a computer to extract tens of millions of euros from unsuspecting billionaires. The problem, Mr. Kirash, is that the money won't come to you. It is against the law. Yes, I I know. That's next time on Persona. Persona is an original series from Wondery, Pineapple Street Studios, and Amazon Music. The show is written and hosted by me, Evan Ratliff. Our senior producer is Henry Malofsky. Our producer is Sophie Bridges. Our associate producer is Chris Knapp. Production assistance from Natalie Pert. Project management by Courtney Harrell. Joel Lovell is our editor. Additional reporting by Shirley Iskari and David Iverson. Translation by Leela Badranath. Fact-checking by Adeline Sear and Danya Suleiman. Mixing by Hannes Brown. Our head of sound and engineering is Raj Makija. Original music by Carla Kilstead and Jeremy Flower. Additional percussion by Matthias Bossi. Our artwork is by Kiyomi Morrison. Music licensing by Dan Kanishkui. Production legal provided by Bianca Grimshaw at Granderson Des Rochers. And Fair Use Council provided by Katie Ali Mohammadi Crown at Donaldson Caliph. Special thanks to Nathan Lippi, to Daniel Estrin and Tia Goldenberg for their 2015 interview with Joubert Shickley, and to Erica Kinnitz, co-author of the Associated Press article on him. Thanks to Rope Haddock and Alana Morishat for their cyber fraud expertise. Jenna Weiss-Berman and Max Linsky are the executive producers at Pineapple Street. From Amazon Music and Wondery, our producers are Eliza Mills and Stephanie Wachneen, and our managing producer is Candice Manriquez-Rent. The executive producers at Amazon Music and Wondery are Morgan Jones, Marshall Louie, and Aaron O'Flaherty. 